Okay, so I'm known for doing crazy things in my sleep. I kick, I roll around, I talk. One time I even had a long conversation with who I thought was a Pizza Hut uh, person on the phone, and I ordered a couple different pizzas. I think pepperoni was my choice, which I never order pepperoni, but I did this time. But this story I'm about to tell you as we get started into the sermon is a little bit different. Has anybody ever heard of the term bikepacking? Anybody? That's good. You probably shouldn't. It's where you take a bicycle, you know, like a standard bicycle, load it down with bags and camping gear and everything you need to sleep for the night, and ride out into the middle of nowhere and camp. Sounds like a lot of fun, doesn't it? It's okay. (laughs) So after you ride out into the middle of nowhere, you have a miserable night's sleep, you make a cup of coffee, and you ride back home. I somehow managed to convince my wife, Kara, that this would be a great idea. I found out the morning that we were getting ready to go that, one, she'd never never ridden her bike over 20 miles, and this was a 25 to 30 mile ride, and two, she'd never gone camping before. So we were going to check a couple things off of, off of the bucket list on that one trip. And the other thing I found out that morning was that my sleeping pad, um, I had multiple sleeping pads for camping, I work at a outdoor store before I came here, Um, but I had a couple sleeping pads, and only one of them was functional. So being the the self-sacrificial person I was, I said, don't worry about it. I'll sleep on the ground. You use the sleeping pad, it'll be fine, right? Well, we make the ride. We get to our campsite. Everybody falls asleep, cares using the sleeping pad. Me, in my lack of ability to, my crazy night's sleep, I stole the sleeping pad in my sleep so that I could sleep a little bit better. This is not quite the image of self-sacrificial love that John is trying to stir up in his hearers in the the epistle of 1 John. And in our text, we're going to be talking through 1 John 3, 9, and we're going to end around 24 is kind of where we're going. But the beginning portion of our text helps to line out many of the pieces that John is trying to spell out through his entire letter. In the opening section of our text, we see a brief glimpse into what John considers the definition of the gospel message. And that is that the church should be light and the church should be love. And the book of 1 John is written to a community to encourage them to be the light and the love to the people around them. Verse 9 says this. says, no one was born of God and keeps making the practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he was born of God. By this it is evident who are children of God and who are children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother or sister. The importance of loving action is kind of the loose title of this sermon. I'm not, I'm not quick to title sermons. Um, But as we begin walking through the the epistle, we've seen a leader of a church who's responding to an issue that's arisen within the church community. The epistle of 1 John was likely written around the first century, like Corey's established as we walk through the sermon series. And John was probably older in his years, writing back to the church community. The apostle John was trying to explain trying to give them some courage over maybe an issue of discord that they've they've had within the church community. And I believe that knowing 
exactly what John was responding to, helps us better understand the message that he's that we can take from this particular epistle and this part of the text this morning. The letter was likely written with pastoral intention to provide correction to something that was affecting the church in a major way. And as Corey has mentioned earlier in the series, we've been walking through the book of 1 John. As Corey's mentioned, John was likely responding to a group called the Gnostics. Now, the Gnostics had influenced the church community in a very negative way. And although Gnosticism took many, many forms in the early church, the primary emphasis was that they over and above emphasized the spiritual over the physical. They believed that you could attain a special knowledge that they called gnosis, which is where they get their name Gnostics. It's from the Greek word, gnosis. (laughs) To be truly good was to totally escape the body. And salvation for the Gnostics was not found in the person of Christ, but it was found in attaining this special knowledge or gnosis. So for the Gnostics, doing good deeds or loving one another or being caring to other members of the church community meant very, very little. Now the church was likely influenced, the church that John was writing to at this time was likely being influenced by these false teachers. They refused to directly associate Jesus being divinity and also being human because of their desire to exalt the spiritual and reject anything that was physical. And this faulty faulty view of the person of Jesus led to an even more faulty view of how you could care for one another. So why does all of this crazy background information about the Gnostics matter? They have a weird name. What does it even have to do with where we're going or where John is going with his letter back to the church in the first century? Knowing the turmoil and the discord that was within the church at that time helps us understand what John is saying to us today. Because if we know exactly the issues that he's combating, we can see how those have made root and they've found our way into what we do on a daily basis. The essential problem in this part of John's message is that Gnosticism's influence on the church had led the Christian believers to live a faith that was totally void of action. Because it was only spiritual, it was only intellectual, and it was only seeking a special knowledge. No form of active love towards the community. The NIV commentary says, At the core, those influenced by the Gnostics had failed because their spiritual, spiritual pride resulted in a lack of brotherly and sisterly love. And John argues that love for other believers is the manifestation of true Christianity. So John's original audience was faced with something that we need to be reminded of on a very daily basis. And that is the importance of loving one another. John begins this message of this portion of his letter with a short story, a familiar short story. In verse 12, he mentions Cain and Abel. Verse 12 says this, We should not be like Cain, who was, the evil, who was of the evil one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. This morning as we walk through the text... I want to get there through a couple of stories that John highlights. The first story that we're examining is of the Old Testament. It's from Genesis 4, and it's the story of two brothers, Cain and Abel. It's familiar. A lot of us have probably heard it. Abel was a shepherd. Cain was, as the Bible says, he was a worker of the ground. 
he was a great farmer. He always kept his field well cared for. He always used the right amount of miracle grow. He raised, used raised vegetable gardens where needed, and he always remembered to water the succulents that he kept on his windowsill. His fruit trees and his vegetable plots yielded a lot of produce, and he thought that it would be beneficial to give of his excess back over to God. Now, Abel, his brother, was a very good shepherd. Abel would always groom the sheep. He'd take care of when, they're, when they needed to be trimmed. He would always trim them and made sure that they had enough food and water. And on hot Texas summers, he would fill up little plastic pools with water so they had enough to cool down because it gets hot out there. And Abel was also committed to God. And one day he gave of his first, the fat portions of the firstborn of his flock, the very best that he had to offer. And he knew God deserved the very best. Well, Cain also brought sacrifices to God. He brought the excess of his fruit. But the Bible says that the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Now this angered Cain. He was displeased with that. So after a short time, one day shortly after, he and Abel went out into a field together, and Cain, the Bible says that Cain rose up against his brother, and there he killed him. It's a familiar story, something horrible between two brothers. Now as you're reading through the letter of 1 John, this story kind of seems like a random interjection. It doesn't seem like there's purpose. But as John's writing this text, he has explicit purpose with using this particular story and this example. And the point that John is shooting to make here is that the same passion that fueled Cain's jealousy and hatred was fueling those of the Christians and those who were influenced by the Gnostics at that time. The message of John's letter is not encouraging the early church to live in the same hate that fueled Cain, but to live opposite, to live in love. The NIV application commentary says, anyone who hates is willing to deny life to his or her opponent and in one sense has already committed murder. But the reverse is also true. Those who exhibit love, who forgive freely and value their neighbor, who bring life, healing, and goodness to others. John is calling Christian church, calling the Christians of his day, his intended audience, and us to be filled with love. Love for each other and love for the world. Verse 13 says, Do not be surprised, brothers and sisters, when the world hates you. The story of Cain and Abel is an illustration of God's appeal to the members of the church, and it opens our eyes to exactly what we are called to be. We're called to be filled with love. That's a word that you'll probably hear a lot during this sermon, is love, because that's where John is going. There's two of his, his twin themes are light and love. And John ends this story of Cain and Abel with an explanation of how Christian love looks. The life of a Christian is meant to be characterized by something altogether different to what the life of Cain was characterized by. And often, the marks of the world are not something that are illustrative of the life of a Christian. We can't be surprised when the worldly perspective looks different than ours. And I think this story helps to open our hearts to being people that are not characterized by what we're passionate against, but characterized by what we care for and how we care for others. 
We're called to be people that exhibit the love of Christ in everything we do. But it's no coincidence that John doesn't just stop with this one story in this portion of the letter. It's actually meant to be a stark comparison with the following text that we'll read this morning. He tells the story of a brother who's filled with hatred and who's filled with jealousy and rage and kills his brother. And in the next story, he tells of something starkly opposite. Verse 16 says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for others. The comparison of this text is meant to be evident. It's meant to take you by surprise, and you're meant to see the difference between the two. Cain is a brother filled with rage and anger, and Jesus is the image of love. The first story shows of someone taking a life, and the second story shows of someone giving of a life. It's a familiar story of a young man from a little town of Nazareth. He's born to a lowly family. His dad was a carpenter in the hometown. In a seemingly unimportant place in the middle of Galilee, he likely grew up working in his father's wood shop, making chairs, farm tables, making sure that there was enough leftover shiplap for people to redo the inside of their houses. This man, he lived differently than everyone else around him. His teaching was unlike anything anyone else had ever heard before. And not only was his teaching unique, but his actions were unique also. This man from the middle of nowhere was healing the sick, curing the blind, making the lame to walk again, and teaching on the prophecy of the Old Testament and how it was being fulfilled at that time. People began to follow him. They'd listen to him. They'd go out to hear him and out to find him. When they asked what the greatest commandments of his day were, he said to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor. They would call, call on him for help when they were in need. They would listen to how he called them to live. And he even had a small group of followers that stayed close to him for the majority of his ministry. Now the leaders of the area started to get upset with him. He was starting to uproot a lot of the political powers because he was teaching something different than they'd ever heard before. This man was celebrated when he entered the city of Jerusalem, and seemingly out of nowhere, the crowds turned on him. They placed him on trial, they beat him, they accused him, spit on him, and he was killed by the authorities of his day. He suffered a brutal death, the most brutal death, death of Crucifixion on the Roman cross. But this person that John is referencing in chapter 3, the one who laid down his life for us, did something more than just die. We believe that he conquered death once and for all, and he paid the penalty that we all deserve. In his death, he defeated death. The Son of God bore all the weight of sin on himself, and he conquered death. His life was blameless, his teachings were countercultural, and he called his followers to love their enemies and to care for those in need. For John, Jesus, the person that he references in verse 13, is the example of what love should be. John sees Christ as the model 
for what Christian love really looks like. He was willing to give of himself so that everyone else may have life. We too are to embrace this self-sacrificial love that doesn't look like me stealing my wife's sleeping mattress in the middle of our camping trip. The essence of John's message in this passage is that genuine love takes action. And genuine love that fails to take action is nothing more than religious talk or special knowledge or gnosis that's found by the Gnostics. The desire is that we embody the calling that is revealed in the person of Jesus. And we live self-sacrificial lives to exhibit the visible signs of love. So the final portion of the text that I want to talk about this morning is in verse 23. And this is kind of moving on from the same point, but that our faith spurs us into action. After the stark contrast that we see revealed in the story of Jesus following the story of Cain and Abel, we see the importance of being moved to that loving action. It's not just about knowing that we're to live a life of of sacrificial love, but being moved into action. The life of a Christian is not characterized by what we say, but the action that we are drawn to. And that's what John is urging his listeners on to. In verse 23, he says this, And this is his commandment, speaking of Jesus, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. In this portion of the text, John is emphasizing a few very, very key points. He's providing us an image of the Christian life that's ethical and theological. The virtues of the Christian life cannot be lived, his essential point, you cannot live the virtues of the Christian life apart from God. Without a knowledge of Jesus' self-sacrificial love for us, his dying on the cross in order to pay the penalty of death that we deserve, without knowledge of that, you can't live a true Christian life. But the same is true that having knowledge of that means that we're not supposed to live a life characterized by the words we say, but by the, word, the actions that we do. He's emphasizing the importance of believing in Jesus' divinity and that Jesus defeated death, but also that our belief in him is not meant to merely be an internal, intellectual ascent into special knowledge. Instead, it's meant to be spurred on to action. John desires that his audience be filled with the love of Christ so much that they're moved into action. They're moved into love. Now, this love isn't always something that is easy. Oftentimes, it's difficult. Sometimes it means loving someone that isn't easy to love, or someone that maybe we don't feel like deserves it. It means... In my case, not ignoring the person who's asking for money outside of the coffee shop on our way in. It means maybe helping our neighbor mend the broken fence when we really just wanted to go home and watch Netflix. It means having the conversation with someone who really just kind of seems like someone who steals all of our time. Sometimes loving one another isn't the easiest thing to do. Sometimes it's offering forgiveness for someone who's who's wronged us. But the message of this epistle, of this letter of 1 John 3, is that we should love one another. We should love one another in our faith, love one another in our words, but we should also love one another in our action. So real love, true 
Christian love is moved to action. Before I conclude this morning, I want to read a kind of lengthy quote from someone named Frederick Buechner. Um, He's talking about the difference and kind of the definition of Christian love. Buechner says this, Of all powers, love is the most powerful and the most powerless. It is the most powerful because it alone can conquer that final and most impregnable stronghold that is the human heart. It is the most powerless because it can do nothing except by consent. In the Christian sense, love is not primarily an emotion, but an act of the will. When Jesus tells us to love our neighbors, he's not telling us to love them in the sense of responding to them with cozy emotional feeling. You can easily produce cozy emotional feeling on demand, as you can produce a yawn or a sneeze. But on the contrary, he, Jesus, is telling us to love our neighbors in the sense of being willing to work for their well-being, even if it means sacrificing our own well-being to that end, even if it means sometimes just leaving them alone. Thus, in Jesus' terms, we can love our neighbors without necessarily liking them. And that, in fact, liking them may sometimes stand in the way of loving them by making us overprotective sentimentalists instead of reasonably honest friends. So friends, church community, everyone here this morning, um, may we be a church community and may we be a community that's willing to love even when it's difficult. This morning, as we move to our time of invitation, maybe you're wondering what when we talk about the message of Jesus Christ and his redemptive love, what that looks like. Maybe you have questions about that. Or maybe this morning you've been harboring ill will or disdain. Or maybe there's someone in your life that's difficult to love. As we have our time of invitation in a few moments, the altar's open if there's anything that you need to feel led to.